Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest is David Nimmons, a longtime LGBTQ community activist in the New York area who published a book in 2002 entitled The Soul Beneath the Skin, The Hidden Hearts and Habits of Gay Men, which inspired a movement called Manifest Love. Dave, welcome. Well, thanks. It's uh, fun to be discussing this again. Um, I'd like to divide the discussion today into two parts. Those things you cover in the book and you discuss a lot of community-wide and individual cultural and behavioral traits that distinguish gay men from the rest of society, especially from straight men. Let's chat briefly about a few of the most noteworthy of those and what their significance is, if you don't mind. And then afterwards, we can discuss what you did once you had that knowledge. Great, great. Uh, please, why don't you tell us what some so, of those are? I became, in the late 90s, really interested in what I saw as cultural differences in the gay spaces I was in versus the rest of my life. And the more I started thinking about it, I sort of realized there were all these different domains. And so in the book, I talk about our low levels of public violence. I talk about our relationship to altruism and service. I talk about our different kinds of structured relationships with women that really don't necessitate or rest on subordination. Um, or, sex, or sexual attraction. Or sexual attraction. I talk about the kind of diffuse nature of intimacy in gay lives, of how we constellate our friendships and loverships and networks, obviously beyond dyadic families, and that I thought that was a really interesting thing. And then I also talk about our relationship to bliss behavior, whether you construe that as you know, our sexuality or celebration or drag or dance parties. And when you start to look at these as patterns, you, you realize that if the only other group that is male, service-oriented, has a certain distinctive relationship to women, distinctive relationship to violence, highly service-oriented, lives in communities, constellates intimacy differently, are sacred brotherhoods. That's who does that. So you have to ask, is it possible that gay community is actually this really interesting social experiment which has at its base an ethical or spiritual set of underpinnings that we never think, we don't think of it as that, but actually look at these very patterns and you're start, you start to see something that looks like a whole different way of putting together community and values. Can and you just for a second tell us what sacred brotherhoods are? Medieval monasteries, priests, religious communities. They're usually single sex, either women or men. Service is a big part of what they do. They live with each other. They care for each other. We know now there's a tremendous amount of sexuality, uh, despite the rhetoric. And so it, you have to at least entertain the notion. You have to sort of, sort of take seriously the idea that actually what we're watching in gay male communities, particularly in the era of the 90s and the turn of the millennium, was actually this free-living experiment in a spiritual kind of community. And mostly my work was trying to ask people to take that seriously and think of what it would then mean for how we comported ourselves and the institutions we built and the language we used. And then as I developed the book, I kind of went into detail in each of these areas. So for example, in the area around public violence, there are 
mounds of police records and criminology records and arrest records. And you can compare gay pride against Puerto Rican pride and St. Patrick's Day. And I interviewed cops in 12 cities and I looked at these records. And, you know, what you see is, I don't think anyone had done that, but what you see is this unbelievably clear pattern that in an environment where you would anticipate there's a lot of testosterone, there's a lot of sexual competition, and there's a lot of alcohol, those should predict much, you know, higher rates of violence. But in gay bars, you just basically don't have fights. And in gay mass gatherings, almost without exception, the violence that's perpetrated is perpetrated on us, not by us. So this is a pretty no, and we're talking about, you know, 10 to 1. Um, the ratio. Are, the ratio. I mean, it's not a, it's not a small difference. Right. And then when you look to subjective data and you ask your friends, have you ever been in a bar fight, ever seen a bar fight? Or you talk to cops and... It became this kind of open secret that cops in Boston and Chicago and San Francisco and everywhere were volunteering for pride. And if you ask them why, they said, well, we're not going to have to bust any head. You know, it's not a dangerous assignment. It's an easy day. It's not like volunteering for St. Patty's Day or the West Indian Day Parade or the other large mass gatherings. They already figured this out. So I actually looked at the the arrest records, you know, and I found the data for it. And I tried to do that in each of these domains around service, altruism, and then also just from my own experience of how, and my friends and watching community, of how we put together our intimacies in remarkably different ways. Well, what you're saying with respect to violence intuitively makes sense. I've had this conversation with friends many times over the years, and the joke always has been, that if you want to have a world without war or fights, just make sure it's run by gay men right. or women. It's the reason that gay terrorist is an oxymoron, right. you know. And so this is, to me, it's an interesting, it's not by any means the only one, because to me the, the ones about affection and caregiving are actually maybe even more beautiful. But it holds something revelatory about the larger culture and the potential of what we bring to humanize the larger the mass culture. What about discussing for a moment the different forms of intimacy that we yeah. construct? So this again, all of these have to be given with a caveat that I was talking about the experiences of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s before we had gay marriage, you know, before much was online. So the listeners may think, ah, that's not how it is now. But what I was noticing was that you had care teams of people taking care of people who are sick. We developed the whole notion of buddies for people who are sick, which has now been borrowed by other in other communities. We, you know, had people who would walk your dog when you were sick. How many of us went to somebody's apartment we barely knew to clean out their porn before mom and dad got here from Oshkosh? And then AIDS prevention, right? where teams of people go into sex spaces to try to save other people's lives, all voluntary. And if you look at the literatures on civic improvement, if you look at the, the who sits on boards, gay men are just vastly overrepresented. Again, it's not even close. Now, you can say, well, you don't have kids, so you, know, you have to put that energy somewhere. But basically, 
there's a high propensity for gay men in that era to do things that are helping the world. And that's the kind of altruism and service part. The relationship and intimacy part that I find, found, find breathtaking is, well, when I did my workshops, we would do this thing where we'd put up a whiteboard and say, okay, so name all the kind of relationships you could have as a gay man, you know, daddy, boy, lover, roommate, friend with benefits. By the way, we launched that term into the culture, you know, we created that idea. Staying on friendly terms with your ex, which is a gay, is much more likely to happen in gay world than in straight world. The idea that the archetypal gay story, if you got off the bus, you hook up with somebody, you're, you know, you're new to the city, you hook up with somebody, they turn out to be a vice president at some ad agency, the next thing you know, you're brought into the, not only to the mailroom job to get you situated in the city, but you're introduced to all his old friends, and the next thing you know, you're moving up in the social world. You then, you know, you move to group houses on Fire Island. You move to gay roommate ships. All of these permeable for people. Maybe you sleep with people and then don't sleep with people. Maybe you date. It's just this extraordinarily fluid and something that looks more like a kind of a Whitman-esque brotherhood than you find in the apartment building next door where it's highly constrained by the social structures of the larger culture. Well, that's not even talking about open relationships in three ways. Or the, um, in the 90s, we put open relationships on the cover of The Advocate. And, you know, 15 years later, the Time magazine did too. New York Times did it this last year. Right. So it's exactly, it's like, we, we do all these social experiments, we name them, we say, hey, look at this, it seems all very daring to the rest of the world. But one of the things we do in, that I found in my research and then I would do in the workshops was, I'd say, okay, so what are the rules you guys know that people use for being open? And there are a million of them, you know, not never twice with the same guy, not in our bed, only when you're traveling. You know, there's a bewildering array of these and you could choose to view those as well. You, Gay boys can't keep it in their pants. But you could also say this is actually an elaborate politesse created in order to keep people in intimate relationships while having their needs met in ways that that relationship can't. Or, you know, giving permission for this extraordinarily more rich set of... Well, in, in my experience, I discovered there's one superseding rule. All rules will eventually be broken and you better love each other enough to figure out how to get around it. Well, it requires communication. Ultimately, right. the it's the test of, can you actually navigate, negotiate, be honest with, and what it doesn't do, or what it decenters is hypocrisy or lying. Right. You know, it's an attempt to say, bring the same authenticity to your relationships that we do to our identities in the world. So all of these, I mean, I could go on for hours, but all of these are examples of the kind of rich tapestry of relationship, mentorship, affection, connection that gay men kind of do naturally. You mentioned in the book a series of communities that meet around the country that are kind of alternative communes where a lot of experimental forms of living and sharing take place. And I found that particularly interesting. I kind of maybe want to run off to one of them. Mm, yeah. I don't know if there's anyone in particular you think may embodied these traits best, 
Did you experience them all, or did you just write based upon research and hearsay? Almost all of them I went to. The ones I could go to, I went yeah. to. So the Gentleman Farmers Brunch Group in Maine, I did not go to because you had to be a gay guy farming in Maine. But I was charmed by that. But Short Mountain in Tennessee, the Radical Ferry Group and their other Radical Ferry enclaves, I've been to. California Men's Gathering, which has been going on for 35 years, which started as one and is now like many because they're so big. Uh, I mean, there's so many men interested in doing it. I've been to leather runs. I've been to uh, gay church uh, retreats, and because I'm, I'm just fat and Fire Island, which is a living, breathing experiment in gay communalism, even though it's you know it's narrated as oh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and hot guys. Well, that's crazy. I mean, it is that, but it's as much old friends having brunch and people caring for each other when they're sick, and you know mornings spent reading the times with buddies and it's just it's such a rich community of shared experience part of which is sex drugs rock and roll and great bodies but it's and ditto the circuit parties i think these are all ways that people have found to celebrate being in community together as well as rites of passage and oh, very much very much all of these are yeah. rites of passage gay nudist gatherings rites of passage Aside from the ways in which gay men are developing innovative and unconventional behavioral norms that might improve society at large, what about the ways in which we fall short in terms of relating openly, humanely, and non-discriminatorily with each other now? How might we improve them? What's the Manifest Love Project that you started about, and does that continue, and how might that help connect with us in ways that we're not successfully doing already? That was the... $64,000 question, right? If you believe that we have all of these domains in which we're doing this very kind of high spiritual work and we're living in this ethically based community, then why aren't we being kinder to each other, really? Is that kept coming up for me as you know, people would have lived experience of, well, gay community doesn't feel, I feel alone or doesn't feel very supportive or they don't have room for people who look like me, my color, my size, my effeminacy, my whatever. And so I decided that we needed to do action around that, and that's what created the Manifest Love weekends and retreats and then actions and kind of movement that grew out of it. And the idea was specifically to take men through a series of discoveries about what do you want? What, what would define a beautiful, robust, caring community for you? And then how could you, and when we have that all on the table, and of course, no surprise, it looks pretty similar in many different cities and in many different groups. It tends to look pretty similar. People want to be accepted and connected. And so then we would do these actions so how do we implement that tonight in this? We're going to go to a gay space, a bar, a, you know, a gay, something like Christopher Street or a bathhouse, or we're going to go to gay space, but we're going to act differently. We're going to act in a way to channel this more radiant gay community, the thing you say you want. We're, tonight, you're not going to participate in throwing shade or being bitchy or you know, being isolated, or all those things we do. Or attitudinal. Or attitudinal. Tonight, we're going to all go as a group, and we're going to 
enter into this gay space and change the rules slightly. We used to call them loving disturbances. And the idea is we're going to try to make this place tonight be more like the thing you say we all want. So why don't you talk about a typical weekend? I mean, you mentioned to me one in Providence that you thought was oh, yeah. particularly meaningful. Providence was a favorite. Chicago was a favorite. And we did, I think, maybe 50 of these, 30, 30 to 50 of these weekends. In Let me talk about Chicago first. Sure, and then I'll sure. talk about Providence. Chicago was we... We picked the most attitudinal sports bar, you know, where it's all about gorgeous bodies. And we went in with bags uh, of cookies, homemade cookies we'd made that were wrapped in saran with a little sticker on them that got people talking about gay values. And the assignment was, we're going to take our 14 guys into the bar and we're going to target guys who are alone. And we're going to go to them and we're going to introduce ourselves, be friendly, draw them in, hand them a cookie, and then ask them, say, your job is now to give this other cookie to some other guy. So we're trying to break the culture of isolation and standard model, and you're not good enough to talk to me, and all that, and uh, enroll people in the bar into this delightful mischief of now needing to go talk to somebody. And within 20 minutes, we completely changed the vibe of the bar. Guys were you know, in circles, they were laughing, they were talking, they were giving each other names. And at one moment, and this is why it just really stood in my memory, in this most attitudinal places, there were maybe 30 of us in a circle that had formed, and I didn't form it, it formed. Guys formed. They had their arms around each other. And one guy who, we, who had come in from the bar, who was not part of us, who was absolutely a 10 in anyone's book. He was, the, he was the guy that the bar was designed to work for. And he said, he started to cry, and he said, like, this is the thing I'm always looking for that I never find. And it, if it wasn't working for him, who was it working for? And it was because, so we just created this little explosion of affection and acceptance on that Saturday night in Chicago at that bar because of our actions. Did you find very often that people refuse to participate? Um, they're always early adopters and they're always hangers back. <laughs> and some guys didn't want, of course, we didn't push our trip, but mo most often guys who didn't want it in the beginning, we would do something and then it became the cool thing that all the guys were doing and then everybody was into it. Now, mind you, it wasn't universal. In uh, another bar, another time, and this might've been in Providence or it might've been in LA, we decided that the theme of this action was going to be touch, and specifically non-sexual touch, uh, you know, just affirming mm -hmm. touch. So we created a, like a lateral conga line outside the bar of our guys who offered back rubs to the guys coming into the bar, shoulder rubs to the guys fully clothed outside, to the guys coming into the bar. And, you know, guys started getting into it, and this was fun, it was the thing. And then we said to those guys who stood in front of us, now you do this, you know, now find another row of guys. You pull in the guys and you start giving the back rubs. So again, 20 minutes into it, we had set this thing up and we stepped away. And all of a sudden, beautiful guys and not beautiful guys and shy guys and old guys and young guys were massaging each other, were having physical touch, which really broke the rules 
of how you're supposed to relate in, in this bar situation. You're supposed to be unavailable. And, and what that means. And what it means, exactly. What it has to mean or doesn't mean. And maybe it just feels good, and maybe it draws us close together and doesn't have to mean I want to go home with you. So that was another of this just example of how you can do this slight um, shift in the patterns that we use together to make it the, the kinder, more inclusive and loving place that we all say we want it to be. And that, you know, that's a macrocosm for gay culture in general, right? You know, we, want, we get to set the rules of this community, so why wouldn't we set the rules that are going to be the kindest? You know, that we all have to live in it. Well, the irony is, of course, we spend much of our early lives being discriminated against, and then we often turn around and discriminate against right. others within our own community. Right. Not intentionally, but it happens. At last, I got onto the boat, so let me quickly pull up the, you know, the rope ladder so the next guy can't get on, right. or you're not good enough, or, yeah, and all of it in service to something that is this huge experiment in affection. You know, ultimately, what really came to me as a revelation in all this is that the gay experiment is not essentially an experiment about sexuality. It's an experiment about affection and connection. And expression of feeling. An expression of feeling and beloved camaraderie, beloved community. But, you know, Harry Hay, you know, the founder of early, early profound thinker and activist in gay community said, gay people are just like everybody else except for what we do out of bed. <laughs> and uh, that went on to be the radical fairy world. Have you ever heard of A Call to Men? No. should have asked you this before the podcast, but uh, I got involved with it through another nonprofit I work with. And this founded by this amazing black man, Tony Porter. And it basically talks about how we're all socialized and inculcated as we are raised into this thinking and we're stuck in a man box. Mm -hmm. Whereas a man you have to do this and a man you right. have to do that. And learning how to break out of that frees you up. And to some degree, gay men, of course, by their very nature, have escaped that right. or in ways, right? But then what you're really saying is ultimately, we get trapped back into it. In some ways, yeah. I mean, in our Caregiving behavior, not at all. Right. In our relations with women, not at all. Right. In our relations to violence, not at all. Right. But in our perhaps relations with each other, exactly. that's where we maybe bring the most masculine damage forward. And it makes all the archetypal sense in the world. If you think that's what a man is supposed to be and you're trying to connect with a man, you embody this male right. set of things and maybe it's not Don't very show helpful. your vulnerability, et cetera, right. et cetera. So you talk about how we've kind of become this paradigm, this representation of the best of our society as a group, but then when we turn it to individuals and ourselves, we in fact fall very short. So what do you think it is will propel us forward? Well, I sort of launched this project in the thought that, first of all, becoming conscious about the other parts of our narrative was an important part of propelling it forward. And the most, of among the millions of responses I got to the workshops and the book, there was one that I heard more than any other, which was, every, I know everything you're saying is true. I just never thought about it. I'd never put it together. But of course, I know it's true. Well, so the whole point was to 
bring it into consciousness so we could name these parts of our experience and then to lead to a discussion about, okay, so it's great that we do all these things. How do we want to be better with each other? How do we want to bring that same radiance that we're showing in all of these other domains, helping our communities and volunteering and being nicer to women and et cetera. How do we bring that into full radiance with each other? And that is the ongoing challenge. Well, you did this for about five years. The research on the book was like three years, and then the working with the workshops was five or six years. Yeah. Right. So you pretty much dedicated much of your life, if not all of it, to kind of pushing this forward and trying to spread the message. And it certainly had, I think you tell me some of these places still continue. I wish I could say they still continue. Okay. The spirit, there are still people who talk about, oh, I remember this thing we did, and it was very meaningful, and right. I'd like to try this. We don't have any act. We at one point had a bunch of active chapters. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to figure out how to resource that because I didn't want it to depend on the itinerant preacher, me showing up, and I wanted these things to live on in Providence. Creating an in infrastructure Denver. for a nonprofit and asking right. for money all the time can be pretty. Well, also, we didn't ask for money. That was the other really crazy thing because I felt like part of what we we're really trying to do was to subvert the cynicism that comes as a natural birthright of being gay. And I can talk about, there's more to say about that, but you can't ask, particularly millennials, because they grew up in a very cynical time, but you can't ask gay men to say, hi, you know, we're gonna try to create a more loving community. We'd like you to spend $500, please. Right. So we did this on, really on a, a voluntary shoestring. We would get brought by local groups. I was not paid. You know, it was all about community housing. Right. And because I felt like you just can't be another humbug preacher, you know, saying, well, we're all going to do God's work and pass the plate for the 50th time. <laughs> um, you know, I just think that's a bad model if you're trying to really get guys to step out of the ordinary and say, well, behold, what we could do differently. So it was, it was a huge logistic challenge, and I didn't succeed at it. I'm glad for having tried. And there was an immense amount of great stuff that came from it. But the getting chapters staying on the ground was a hard thing to do. Well, it's it's an exhausting project for yeah. one person to devote him or herself to. And when I referred earlier to funding, and I didn't mean asking the participants in the individual actions to pay. I meant creating an organization oh. that raised money through... 5013C right. status that would then pay for all that. Because right. without that infrastructure, it would not continue. Right, exactly. And so what are your thoughts? We were a 501C3 actually. Oh, really? Okay. But it was um, it was hard to, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the funding world is not used to seeing something that says manifest love yeah. <laughs> that is talking about gay men's ethical actions. So yeah. it was a heavy lift to start with. Um, we did have a little foundation funding, but not. It messaging would have been tough. Yeah, it was. It was. So any thoughts for how this might be continued or any organizations that exist that might take it on or anybody else we, you might approach and re revisit the notion? No, not really. I mean, I should say yes, but the truth is I feel like the cultural analysis really has changed a lot. We're in a very different time. Right. Collective solutions are more complicated we have much more hugely pressing threats yes. to our community. So I don't see very many places doing this 
transformational work around our relations with each other. There's lots of personal transformation work, you know, the advocate experiences of the world, the guests, the landmark form, that stuff. I don't see places, I, you know, I guess the places where I think the spirit lives on are places like Easton Mountain, but California Men's Gathering more robustly, all the radical fairy encampments. I think they're trying to do something different about how we relate to each other, but in terms of places that are attempting to have an impact on, say, an urban gay culture, right. the way we really live our lives when we're not at retreats, right. I don't see anyone doing this. Well, I found the message very powerful and matched what uh, Tom Walker and I are constantly discussing and talking with our guests about through Bammer.co and my Instagram page, Bammer47. So for those interested in learning more about this, even with the 20-year, 15, 20-year uh, gap between you first started doing this and now, uh, a lot of it's very relevant. So I would recommend looking your book up on Amazon. You can get it for almost nothing on Kindle. Yeah, um, great. And it's a really, really reproductive read. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. And if you do have a copy, give it to a library. Right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This episode of Bammer and Me was produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more interviews and stories, please visit bammer.co.